In the 1890s, Fredericktonians pooled money together to help fund a brand new health institute. It would be based around an extraordinarily bizarre new health remedy, a gold-based solution to cure alcoholism. And by gold, I do mean the valuable mineral. The Keeley Center was an early detox center for substance abuse, but a rather unusual one. It offered its patients, who were alcoholics, unlimited free whiskey, as long as they took their cure, which was four needles per day of the gold-based medicine, followed by four drinks per day of a tonic drink, which was also gold-based. The Fredericton Institute would soon collapse, falling apart after only two years, amid allegations that the rehab center had become a hotspot for parties. Curiously enough though, despite its reputation, it actually did help many of the people who went there. This is the story of the curious rise and dramatic fall of Fredericton's Dr. Leslie E. Keeley Gold Cure Institute for the Treatment of Drunkards. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Dr. Leslie E. Keeley was an obscure backwoods physician working in the tiny American Midwest town of Dwight, Illinois, population 1300. After graduating from the Rush Medical College in Chicago, he became a battlefield doctor during the American Civil War. It was during the war that he directly encountered the devastating impacts alcoholism had amongst some of the veterans of that conflict. After the war's end, he began experimenting with using various medications to cure the alcoholism he had witnessed amongst those who had seen the battlefields of the American Civil War. The doctor decided to form a company to work on finding a cure to alcoholism and he named that company after himself, writing, It would give more tone and prestige to the business if my name was used and my titles of medical doctor given. So we decided to call the firm name Leslie E. Keeley, MD. His company developed what he claimed was the cure to alcoholism. And this so-called medicine contained gold. You may be familiar with how in the 1800s there were some unusual medicines that were offered to the public. That time period got the nickname the poisoning century for some of the more dubious ingredients in medicines which could be quite toxic. For example, we probably all know the story of how Coca-Cola once contained actual cocaine. In the newspaper of the small city of Fredericton, whose population in 1894 was about 7,000 people, we can find ads for so-called health products such as Hood's Sarsaparilla Cures, Payne's Celery Compound, Beetham's Glycerin and Cucumber Cream, Dr. Wilson's British Cough Balsam, Burdock's Blood Bitters, and Dr. Williams' Pink Pills for Pale People. Those alleged medicines promised to cure everything from failing manhood, nervous debility, lost vigor, and night terrors. 
Historian Cheryl Krasnick-Warsh notes, however, that Despite their popular vegetarian names, they were composed of opiates, cocaine, strychnine, arsenic, chloral hydrate, or alcohol. This so-called cure for alcoholism that Dr. Leslie E. Keeley came up with was, according to Frederick Hargraves, who would later become a disgruntled ex-partner of Keeley's company. The original formula for the remedy was chloride of gold and sodium in pill form, but it came near killing the poor fellow who tested it first. After that setback of almost killing his first patient, Dr. Leslie E. Keeley went back to the drawing board and developed a new drug to cure alcoholism. This one would no longer be based around gold, but it still called itself the gold cure anyway, because according to Dr. Keeley, It was an awful good name and I hated to part with it. However, while this drug didn't contain gold, it did contain some ingredients which might raise eyebrows. According to Dr. Keeley, I had developed another formula more efficacious than gold, a combination of atropine, strychnine, and arsenic. So why were people taking these so-called medications with dubious ingredients they saw advertised in newspapers in the first place? Well, people back in the 1800s weren't any dumber than today. Our human brains haven't changed any in only 200 years. So there must have been some kind of cultural context it would make people more eager to take mystery drugs they bought from ads they saw in newspapers back then. Actually, there was some context that makes this strange 1800s pill frenzy make more sense. I'll just give you a quick overview though, but take it from the start. From ancient Greek times, right through the beginning of the 1800s, medicine was basically unchanged. It was based around the idea there were four humors in the body, black bile, phlegm, blood, and yellow bile. Sickness was caused by those four elements being out of balance. For example, too much blood was thought to cause fevers, so the solution was to let out some of that blood. You probably heard of bloodletting, most likely in the context of the medieval dark ages. Well, it wasn't just the dark ages, that was the cutting edge of medical science for about 2300 years from the ancient Greeks right up to the start of the 1800s. In the early 1800s, medicine rapidly and recklessly lurched in a new direction. They decided that chemicals were the cure to sickness. The finest medical advances declared that a few specific drugs could cure everything. And that particular cure was a drug called calomel. King calomel, it was gleefully called. And the disease didn't matter, but calomel was the cure. Problem was, calomel was derived from mercury, which is toxic. And it was massively overprescribed by doctors to patients in outrageously large quantities. In those large quantities, calomel would sometimes cause horrific disfigurement, such as literal corrosion of the mouth, jaw, and stomach. Calomel was described as a heroic medicine that could cure everything, and therefore it was prescribed for everything. The awful side effects caused a public backlash and the suspicion of doctors, and that's what led to desperate people willing to seek out herbal or mineral-based cures instead of chemical-based ones but also, perhaps more importantly, those advertised medicines from newspapers basically said, if these are your symptoms, then this is your cure. And as hard as it is for us to believe today, 
That idea was revolutionary and controversial. I dug up this quote from the year 1900 from Dr. D. McIntosh, president of the Nova Scotia Medical Society, complaining about this newfangled idea that illnesses should be treated differently based on their symptoms. Perhaps one of the most common and the most baneful in its effects is the idea that every disease has definite symptoms and is labeled with its antidote and that all the physician has to do is find the name of the disease, apply the antidote, and cure the malady. Nothing could be further from the truth on this idea. This radical new idea that treating the specific symptoms of a sickness began to take off. It was applied to all sorts of ailments, including substance abuse addiction, like alcoholism. According to Family Outreach Ontario, today, some 4.2% of Canadians self-identify as alcoholics. That means that 1.3 million Canadians currently admit to themselves, and others, that alcohol is a problem for them. The real number of alcoholics in Canada is estimated to be three times higher. As we saw in the Backyard History podcast episode called Drinking in the Maritimes, though, people used to drink vastly more back then than they do today. Alcohol abuse was a real social ill, and that meant that many people were desperate for a cure to alcoholism. This was true in large cities all across North America at the time, but it was also true of small towns like Fredericton. On the night of December 16, 1877, some 1,000 people carrying torches marched through the streets of Fredericton to support prohibition, which means a complete ban on alcohol. Considering that the population of Fredericton was only 6,000 people at that time, that's a pretty impressive turnout in favor of banning booze. While blunt tools like banning alcohol and shaming alcoholics were certainly popular, there was also a more sympathetic view coming to the forefront back then. This idea was that for some people, drinking alcohol was a disease, a compulsion, something out of their control, rather than just an act of weakness or a personal failure. This idea, which is largely accepted by medical science today, was first introduced by celebrated American doctor Benjamin Rush in his 1784 book called An Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits. Dr. Rush's proposed solution to the problem of alcohol addiction was taking alcoholics out of society into a place so that could help them get cured. He was envisioning some kind of rural camp where patients could go to detox and get away from it all and recover before returning to society in a better headspace, more able to control their compulsion to drink. Unfortunately, that only partly happened. Alcoholics were indeed taken out of society but instead, they were placed in insane asylums. Do you remember the episode of this podcast called Secret Diary from the Lunatic Asylum? Well, between 1875 and 1899, 212 alcoholics were placed in that lunatic asylum in St. John. Dr. Waddell, who was in charge of this asylum, protested the placement of alcoholics in his institution in a letter he wrote to the government, which read, 
There's a class of inebriate who would be willing to resist alcohol if they could. The cravings of a vitiated appetite and who would be glad to avail themselves of a respectable retreat, where they might avoid an enemy that has proved too powerful for their moral nature, where they might strengthen good resolutions, overcome bad habits, and ultimately reform. He went on to point out that locking people up who were genuinely seeking help for the drinking problem in his lunatic asylum was not an appropriate treatment. Dr. Leslie E. Keeley went to the Rush Medical School, which was named after the pioneering Dr. Rush. Its teachings profoundly influenced Dr. Keeley to find a cure for this disease. If we set aside the whole fixation on gold by Dr. Leslie E. Keeley for a moment and look at his words, we began to see that he marked a huge shift in how addiction was understood by the general public. His popular book called The Keeley Treatments was a massive shift in how alcoholism was viewed not as a moral failing, but as a disease. In that book, Dr. Keeley wrote, It is supposed that drunkards are generally persons of low character and disreputable habits, in addition to the drunkenness. This is a mistake. A large majority of drunkards are persons who possess high qualities of the mind and of the heart. Very often, many hesitate to seek treatment, fearing doing so will bring discredit and lower them in the estimation of their friends and the public. It is a false one. Intelligent, thinking people now understand that drunkenness is a disease, and as such should be treated by specific medication, and is not regarded as a vice to be overcome by willpower or moral suasion. It is more manly and commendable to shake off the shackles of drunkenness than to continue a slave to its degrading influence. Instead of lowering him, seeking help will elevate him in the esteem of those whose goodwill is worth having. When his cure is completed and he returns home, he will find that the land of fellowship cordially extended to him. His family and friends will trust him, he will have confidence in his future, and he will speedily regain his proper place in society, compelling the respect and esteem of his fellow men. Much of what Dr. Keeley said revolved around the point that seeking help wasn't weak, but it was strong and it was manly. Dr. Keeley didn't have too much to say about women drinking, which was also a problem back then, but a large focus was on emphasizing how tough and manly it was to seek help for drinking. It was manly to ask for help and it was weak and cowardly to keep drinking when they had a problem. Following his mentor, Dr. Rush's ideas, Dr. Keeley built up the Dr. Leslie E. Keeley Gold Cure Institute for the Treatment of Drunkards in Dwight, Illinois. When people began traveling far and wide for his treatment, Dr. Keeley built other centers. By 1893, there were 92 Keeley Institutes all over North America. These Keeley centers were a series of rather luxurious hotel-like camps all over the United States, Canada, and even in England. These were offered as a much gentler alternative to being locked up in the lunatic asylum. You would have to stay for 31 days in one of Dr. Leslie E. Keeley's camps? Well, you didn't have to. It was suggested you stayed for 31 days. You were free to come and go if you wanted. You could even go home if you wanted. You could even drink in Dr. Leslie E. Keeley's centers. In fact, drinking was encouraged, at least at the beginning. 
patients were encouraged to taper off their drinking over the course of the first couple of weeks in the center. As long as they showed up for their four shots of the gold cure a day, patients were free to do as they pleased. Often this meant that they spent their time discussing similar life stories and talking about their problems with understanding like-minded people. This would not have been an option for many of them in the rigid Victorian society of the time. Rather notably, these Keeley centers weren't actually run by Dr. Keeley. They were franchises, like a fast food restaurant today. While they were set up along the same lines everywhere, how they were actually managed could vary locally. This, as it would turn out, would be the downfall of the short-lived Fredericton Keeley Center. Fredericton's Keeley Center would be the only Keeley Center in all of Atlantic Canada. It attracted patients from not only this region, but a disproportionate number of wealthy patients came up from Maine and other New England states just to be able to go to the center. Fredericton's Keeley Center was inside of a large mansion named Salamanca Cottage, which was located between the Forest Hill Cemetery and where the University of New Brunswick is found today. It was quite a remarkable building, boasting not only 21 rooms, but its own private train stop. That was because the person who originally built it was the president of the Fredericton Railway Company. It had previously been lived in by luminaries like former attorney generals, politicians, railway executives, and Bishop Medley. It was three stories high and boasted its own fruit orchard, as well as horse stables on the ground. At first, I was under the impression that a group of businessmen had pooled money to buy Salamanca Cottage to turn it into the Keeley Center. But when I looked into it, it seems that it was never sold by its owner, who actually might have been living there at the time. The owner during this time, when Salamanca Cottage was a pioneering rehab facility, was Senator David Wark. He was New Brunswick's first ever senator, appointed back when the country was formed in 1867. In 1894, when the Keeley Center was created in Fredericton, he was still a sitting senator, even though he was 100 years old. According to the Montreal Herald, Senator Wark was, at the time, the longest-serving politician in the world. I found a couple of newspaper reports from the time indicating the senator was leaving to and from Ottawa on his private railway stop in front of Salamanca Cottage at the time that this was the Keeley Center. So perhaps we should imagine a 100-year-old senator, the oldest politician in the world, puttering around in the background during what happens next. Fredericton's Keeley Center debuted in 1894 at a great fanfare. It would take an intake class of 50 patients. They were all wealthy and prominent men, from executives to business people to government officials. This means that the Keeley Center had already shifted the perceptions of the public somewhat. Before that, addiction was a shameful thing to be suffered in silence. And then, almost immediately after its splashy debut, the Keeley Center began to run into a bunch of strange problems. Less than two years later, it would be shut down. 
Oddly enough, the problems had absolutely nothing to do with the actual gold-based injections they were giving to patients. No, that would have been expected. The problems that it encountered were much, much stranger than that. The Fredericton Center was located on Forest Hill Road, which would be right up the street from where the University of New Brunswick is today, which is where I did my undergrad. Back then, the university's forefather, called King's College, was located in that same place. As we saw in the podcast episode about Oscar Wilde's maritime tour, the students of King's College could sometimes be an awfully rowdy bunch. Now recall how the Keeley Centers offered unlimited free whiskey. You probably wouldn't get many rehab centers offering free booze now. But there was some logic to it. Dr. Keeley's gold shots didn't just contain gold. They had a few different drugs in them. One was called atrophine, which is a highly effective counter-irritant to alcohol. So the patients would be encouraged to drink booze, but at the same time they were being given a drug which would make them sick from drinking. It would make their mouths and throats dry after drinking booze at first, and then if they kept drinking more alcohol, it would become more painful. Then after the shots, remember they had that drink they would have to take, the tonic. The patients didn't know this, but in that whiskey-based drink was apomorphine, which is a powerful emetic. That's a polite medical way of saying it's something that made you throw up. The whole idea of this was to create negative associations in the alcoholic's brain about booze. So the patients learned to avoid alcohol. However, the students down the road from the Keeley Center were aware of the open-door policy of the center and of the unlimited free booze inside. Now, I don't know what you were like when you were in university, but if there was a place up the road from UMB that offered unlimited free whiskey when I was there, well, I'd probably have paid a visit. And that's exactly what happened. The Keeley Center became something of a party hotspot for King's College students. Meanwhile, more respectable Fredericktonians sniffed that. The actions seen in that house were not calculated to give the best impression to respectable people. One curious recollection from a party noted that a former patient observed the director's daughter shut up in the parlor with a patient. The ladies were practicing high kicking and the patients were marking the height of the high kicks on the wall. There was no comment on whether or not the 100 year old senator who apparently still lived there during this time had attended the parties. But the parties weren't even the biggest problem. Probably the single biggest issue that led to the Keeley Center's collapse was its manager, Scott Robinson. Scott Robinson was a talented publicist, but he was perhaps not the best choice of a manager. The single biggest issue he caused wasn't really specific to the Keeley Center though. It would have been a problem for any business. Scott Robinson guaranteed 100% success, or a money-back refund. His belief in the Keeley system seemed to be genuine. Scott Robinson himself spoke openly about his own struggles with addiction, and how the Centre in Montreal had helped him. However, when one patient the program didn't help sued the Fredericton Keeley Centre, because it failed to live up to Scott Robinson's 100% success guarantee, 
the center became entangled in several high-profile legal woes. The ensuing court case painted a picture of Robinson that implied that he, well, to put it politely, was not necessarily as clean living as he claimed. It emerged in the court case that Robinson had been seen visiting Mary O'Brien's place of assignation, and that's a polite name for a brothel in Fredericton. Furthermore, he was also spotted visiting an opium den in St. John. Robinson, for his part, didn't deny the visits, but he did deny that he had been there for nefarious purposes, saying of the opium den, My business took me to such places. And he declared that he was visiting prostitutes in order to deliver a letter, a letter that I would gladly read to the directors of the Keeley Center and to my wife, advising these female acquaintances to abandon that course of life. All of these issues paled in comparison with the final problem, though. One which would end the Fredericton Keeley Center for good and shake other Keeley Centers around the world. It's a sad story of the man in charge of medical treatment in the Fredericton Keeley Center, Dr. LaBelle. Dr. LaBelle would later be blamed by the media and the public for the ultimate demise of the center, which had been seen so positively at the beginning. However, from piecing together the admittedly rather limited bits of information I could on Dr. LaBelle, he seems to be a vastly more tragic figure than he was portrayed at the time. From the start, Dr. LaBelle was aware that he himself was not doing well. He declared to the center's directors when they hired him that he was battling a severe and crippling depression. The admission is remarkable in and of itself because depression was barely understood and really just not talked about back then. In the aftermath of what happened, his role in the events would be studied with interest by top doctors in faraway London, England, who were fascinated with depression. This would be one of the earliest and most high-profile examples of public discussion around the impact of pressure and overwork on members of the medical profession. The patients in the center remembered Dr. LaBelle as a kind and caring physician who took an interest in their troubles and tried to talk to and understand them on a personal level. Sadly, in his effort to try and keep working through his depression, Dr. LaBelle turned to cocaine. He was such a heavy user that he had to inject it with needles in order to make it work since he'd built up such a strong tolerance to the drug. The directors of the Keeley Institute in Fredericton were aware of Dr. LaBelle's addiction, but they didn't have a replacement doctor. So he kept working even though reports by the directors noted that he had sometimes been in no condition to administer the medicine. He began making mistakes including mixing up medicines. In the wake of the lawsuit against the Keeley Center in September 1895, Scott Robinson was fired. The board of directors made the unfathomable decision they would soon have tragic repercussions. They appointed Dr. LaBelle as the manager of the Keeley Center. He wouldn't last long in the new role. Within a matter of only days, Dr. LaBelle disappeared. His disappearance became a media sensation, with newspapers from all over Atlantic Canada and New England and Montreal following the sad case of the missing doctor with intense interest. Newspaper reports trace a sad story of a doctor who could not heal himself, 
and of a public who were confused that a medical professional could be sick. As Dr. LaBelle's brother and brother-in-law, both from New York, came to Fredericton to search for him, local authorities began dragging the river, looking for a body. But meanwhile, bizarre and sad reports began to pop up occasionally in newspapers of appearances of Dr. LaBelle. He seemed to have been mostly living in the woods, traveling by foot. Sometimes he would pop up on farms in the river valley, asking for food and help. For example, the St. John Daily Telegraph newspaper from September 19, 1895, recounts one brief encounter. Word reached the city today stating that a strange man answering the description of the missing Dr. LaBelle had made his appearance at a house in Russia Gornish last Saturday evening. His stay was very brief, however, and he was last seen making his way in the direction of the woods. On October 8th, the news broke that a body had been found in Lincoln, Maine. It was reported to be carrying a large sum of money, a gold watch, and a syringe. The Daily Times newspaper reported, He is believed to be Dr. LaBelle from Fredericton, who disappeared mysteriously from the Keeley Institute of Fredericton, having been the manager of that institute. The cause of death is unknown. Before the end of the year, the Keeley Center in Fredericton was unceremoniously shut down. Ten years later, Several former patients of the Keeley Center returned to Fredericton. They met up in the luxurious CPR restaurant, the finest dining establishment in the city. According to Austin Squire's book, Fredericton, The First 200 Years, they had gotten together to reminisce about their time in the Keeley Center, and they talked about how they had all been sober ever since. They'd been sober now for a full decade, of the first 50 alcoholics and drug addicts to graduate from the program in Fredericton, only eight of them had relapsed and the others had all stayed sober. So how do we reconcile the fact that so many people were helped by the Keeley Center when it was offering what was obviously a quack medicine made from gold? I believe that an article from the Moncton Tribune from August 25th, 1894, before the later controversies emerged, offered a clue to the real gold in the Keeley Center's cure. The article describes a large and well-attended crowd filling up Moncton's Opera House, the most prestigious and the largest venue in the city. An orchestra was playing as they entered. The crowd included local luminaries like the mayor and government officials. Scott Robinson, manager of the Keeley Center in Fredericton, in the time before his disgrace, stepped out onto that stage. He talked to the audience openly about his own struggles with addiction, saying, Personally, I had early contracted the drink habit, and as a disease, it every year obtained control over me. Next, a prominent judge from Fredericton, Judge Stedman, spoke. He told the audience that many of his friends, and even himself, a prominent judge, had struggled with alcohol problems for years and years. He declared that he could think of 60-odd friends of his who struggled with addiction. He spoke of the struggle and the shame of addiction, the ups and the downs, his attempts to clean up, and the relapses and the falling back into the throes of it. He declared that many of his friends had sought help at the Keeley Center and were healed. Next, a prominent businessman named A.W. Baird spoke. He declared, 
Personally, I can attest from my own experience. I was such a drinker that I drank four four-ounce bottles every afternoon. He spoke openly about not only the physical effects of addiction, the illness, the nausea, but also the effects on his life, on his family, on his loved ones. He declared, I saw 300 persons go through that institute and come out. The treatment seems to drive out the poison of alcohol. Not one of the 60-odd cured in Fredericton have relapsed. I appeal to the victims of the drink habit. I appeal to the victims of the drink habit to try this cure. The speakers were not met by the usual hushed tones, by the mocking and the shaming, by the gossip and the disdain which addicts typically encountered back in those Victorian times, and still today. Instead, the crowd at the Moncton Opera House rose to their feet and applauded the men on stage for openly acknowledging their problem and the steps that they had taken to get better. While a gold treatment in the Keeley Centre was quackery and potentially toxic, the institution's time in Atlantic Canada brought about a major shift in the public's understanding of addiction. The real gold in Dr. Keeley's idea wasn't in his cure, but in how it introduced a more open and compassionate way of looking at addiction and helping people who struggled with it. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.